So our reading this morning in Mark 9 brings before our hearts and minds one of the most well-known stories in the Gospels, and that is the Transfiguration. And this morning I want to help us think about what were the purposes of God in the Transfiguration? Right? I mean, we can all kind of picture the scene, right, on a, on a, a mount or a hill somewhere, Jesus kind of, you know, leading Peter, James, and John along with him up to the hill, and he's transfigured, Moses and Elijah show up, the voice of God, we can hear, we can see that in our imaginations, right? But what was the purpose behind it? It was obviously an amazing miracle, right, of, of some, to use a word like that. I mean, like something supernatural, something miraculous, something transrational, something like that happened, right? And actually, people have asked this question about all of Jesus's miracles. You know, what were the purposes? And one answer, kind of a missional answer, is that they were signs or foretastes of the kingdom that will someday be consummated. And I, I think that's true, that's, that's fair enough. But what I and others have also noticed alongside that, that, that it wasn't just that Jesus was using miracles to announce and demonstrate the, the inbreaking of the kingdom, it was that. But if you'll think about it for a moment, virtually all the miracles had underlying compassion associated with them, right? What could be more compassionate than seeing a funeral procession go by where a widow, did you catch that? Whose only son had just died. I mean, right? I mean, that's a tremendous miracle when you raise a boy from the dead. But there is also tremendous compassion there. And I could go on and on telling stories like that. But there's nothing like that at the transfiguration. So was this just sort of God showing off? Right, I used to sometimes say that if God just wanted to show off, he didn't have to cleanse lepers and raise the dead and all that. He could have, you know, Jesus just could have got on a donkey and did backflips, right, down Main Street in Jerusalem going, check that out, yo, right? I mean, like if he just wanted to show off, there was lots of things he could have done. But essentially what he did had compassion. This seems to be a one-off. So like, what's really happening here? And I think to answer that question, I have to remind you of last week's reading in Mark 8. Well, remember the core of the work we did last week was trying to answer this really deep, profound question or come to a decision, a really profound decision around this question of Jesus, who do you say that I am? And then remember, right after that, there was a stern warning about what an important decision this is. And you see arguably the strongest words of Jesus in the New Testament where he says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. So you have this really stark decision-making moment where remember Jesus went on to say that if you're ashamed of me in this world, well, when I come again in glory, you know, what's that gonna mean for you? And so it, it was a really profound moment. So I, I think it's something like this. When you're being asked to count the cost of things like come follow me or seek first the kingdom of God or love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength or when you're being asked to love your neighbor, which sometimes includes your enemy, or when you hear Jesus say things like, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. 
And when you hear him say things, as he said in Mark 8 last week, that whoever does not take up his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. When that's what's really at play, hold in your mind, if you can, those phrases I just said to you. And now think something like civil religion. Those are very different things. Or think of just having sort of familial faith. Like, well, I was, I'm an Irish Catholic. Or I'm a Swedish Presbyterian. Or a, a Swedish Lutheran from Wisconsin. Right? There's all sorts of faith. There's sort of familial faith like that. There's American civil religion. But when you're being asked to actually seek first the kingdom of God, to actually take up your cross, give up our lives in, in favor of the life that we find in Jesus, then I wanna say I think it's really good to know that there's something beyond us, something that is precisely not us, that is so important, yet with us and real. And so I think what we see in the transfiguration and we can begin to approach the purposes of God in the transfiguration is that there is here further warning but also powerful assurance, right? This is my son, listen to him, right? So a little bit of warning, you might say, but also amazing assurance that there is something beyond us. And so you'll note that after the transfiguration, remember when Jesus rebuked Peter last week, remember the essence of the rebuke was for you have in mind the things of, remember, men, not the things of God. Well, after the transfiguration, they now have the capacity to see things from God's point of view, not from humanity's. In fact, in one of his letters, in 2 Peter 1, Peter talks about this moment, and he says, we didn't follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We heard the voice that came from heaven on the sacred mountain. So I think that moment at the transfiguration is something like this. I'm so old that I can barely remember this, but some of you in the room are younger, so maybe you can remember better. But remember, I don't know, what would it have been like fourth, fifth, or sixth grade or something like secondary elementary age when you got to look through a microscope for the first time? Maybe just a pebble or two of sand but under the microscope, this whole other reality exploded in front of you. Or maybe it was just a human hair, but under a microscope, man, there was a lot more there than you thought. Or a blade of grass, and suddenly it's just not a blade of grass. Under a really powerful microscope, you see a reality, catch this, that's always there, but not always seen or reversing it to a telescope. You know, with our, with our just naked eyes, the, the, the skies at night just look like something. But through a really powerful telescope, something else emerges that again is always there, just not always apparent. And here I think we start getting down to the purposes of God in the transformation, in the transfiguration. It's not just kind of showing off. But what's happening is that the veil of ordinariness about Jesus, right? Like if there's a veil of ordinariness about a single blade of grass or grain of sand that a microscope shows to be something different, you have a very similar thing happening here. There was an ordinariness about Jesus's person. 
But the veil of that was pulled back and a fuller reality was exposed and it suddenly overwhelms Peter and James and John. And I think, you know, it goes something like this. Wow. Predetermined suffering, meaning crucifixion and resurrection, it doesn't look anything like Jews had imagined. But wow, Jesus really is the Messiah. Right, so just think of, he, he would say these cryptic things and they didn't know what he meant. He didn't speak pe- uh, clearly, he spoke in parables. He would do magical things and then tell people, don't say anything about it. I mean, Jesus was not easy to understand. So he not only was ordinary, but confusing all at the same time. And what happens in the transfiguration is that veil is lifted And they can see that Jesus truly is the Messiah. This is nothing like we thought, but this is real. And I think what this teaches us is that we live in a world of multiple layers and a world of many dimensions. And for us who are trying to walk with God and live spiritual lives, these layers and dimensions come in and out of our view. And so I want to say something to you that I don't think I've ever said to you in all these years we've been together because I know that when we think or talk like this, that it can seem mystical or whatever, and therefore might make us, those of us who are really you know, committed Western scientific worldviews, this can be hard for us to take on. And we might even say, gee, this sounds sort of Eastern. Well, you're gonna go, duh, as soon as I say this, but have you ever considered that the Bible is an Eastern book written by Eastern peoples for Eastern peoples out of an Eastern context? that it wasn't written at MIT and it wasn't written at Stanford or Wharton Business School. It's a different animal. The Bible is a completely different animal. And it's we as Westerners who have to try to learn to read this Eastern book and take on this Eastern worldview that didn't live with the kind of discrete categories that we we live in that created for most Western people this excluded middle. So you had God and you had human life, but there was no middle ground in which these two things could have any sort of concourse together. That's our Western worldview. But a more Eastern worldview says that there is things that matter that we can't always see. Here's another way to think about it. In ordinary time, we've been saying the Apostles' Creed, but in time seasons like Advent and Lent and other seasons, we say the Nicene Creed. So what goes through your mind when you say these words of the Nicene Creed? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all there is, anybody remember the next words? Visible and invisible. Well, could anything important be invisible? These are always the moments when I say, let's all go on a weekend retreat, just with that question. Could anything important be invisible? Or is it like only this stuff that's visible, that's important? Or putting it different, only this kind of stuff that's real? And we could just say one thing. I mean, again, I could carry on, but what about this? Let's just, let's just say one thing that's invisible but real and super important. 
the rule and reign of God. It's invisible to the naked eye, but it lies behind everything. Think of it chronologically or think of it in terms of narrative if you want. Before the words were spoken, let there be light, and we have the material world as we now know it of space and time, what existed before that? A trinity of beings. So is there anything invisible that's real and important? Yeah, trinity. The kingdom of God. There are lots of things that are deeply fundamental that are invisible to us, but on the Mount of Transfiguration, they were all reminded and we get reminded because it's written for us in the Synoptic Gospels that there is something deeply real that lies behind our daily life. But this is counterintuitive. In one of his books uh, or somewhere, I heard uh, Willard say that the visible world daily bludgeons us with its things and events, pinching and pulling and hammering away at us. But instead of shouting and shoving, the spiritual world whispers at us every so gently. So it's real, but it doesn't usually come to us in these transfiguration sort of moments. It comes to us in whispers. And this is why for millennia, Christian spirituality has found its roots in listening, stillness. If you've ever wondered, why are silence and solitude the two of the sort of core spiritual disciplines of two millennia of Christian history? Well, because it's what allows listening. It's stilling ourselves that allows us to notice what's real. These whispers that don't shout at us like the world that bludgeons us. So a couple of things that I want to say about this passage. I think this passage, there's two things I think we have to say, to be honest, to the passage. There's kind of two tracks in this passage that I think we, we need to think about. And the first one is narrative theology, the unfolding story of God. And the second, of course, is a bit more about what we've, saying, we've been saying about our own personal formation. So in terms of narrative theology, there appeared to, the, to Jesus and his three friends on the mountain, Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Well, why Elijah's, Elijah and Moses? And for me, that raises a further question. What was the inner logic giving cohesion to Jesus's life and work? Right? What did he think he was doing? To what was he conscious? What did he think the Father was doing in and through him? And the answer to that question is at minimal narratival. That is to say that Jesus knows that he arises in history precisely in an ongoing story, in a narrative implied by Moses, representing the law, which again, don't think of that as like just the Ten Commandments or something. Think of it as like God's guidance of his people. And then the prophets. The prophets were those who, they helped people see that, look, God's guidance means to walk this way, but you guys are walking this way. And the prophets came along and they noticed and called out that gap and said, repent, turn and walk towards that which the law is trying to nudge us to like a shepherd with a rod and a staff. And so Moses and Elijah, I mean, they represent a lot, but for us this morning, we can just say they represent the narrative in which Jesus is calling his disciples to follow him. And this is why, as you look at your, the end of our passage there, Jesus says to them, look, Elijah does come first. 
because Malachi had prophesied that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord, which Jesus now knows he is the fulfillment of that prophecy, the day of the Lord. He comes to restore all things, or the, the text in Malachi actually says, to turn hearts back to God. And so Elijah was meant to come like a herald, that what Elijah did would come again and there would be a herald before Jesus, and that, of course, is John the Baptist. And so what, what we're seeing here in the transfiguration is the, is the ability to notice that Jesus is the true culmination of this story that began with let there be light all the way through John the Baptist, and that the transfiguration thus gathers up all that past, but also points to the future when Jesus will one day come again. Now just think of everything you've ever read in Revelation about how he comes back. The light, the power, the majesty, the unspeakable glory, the, un, the inability for human beings even to look upon it. So they just get a little taste of that on the Mount of Transfiguration. It explains the past and it points to the future. And, and, and basically helps these guys. I have so much empathy for Peter. He was terrified and just sort of blurted out the first thing that came to his mind. I get it. There's a really big thing happening here. You know, the father only spoke directly to earth twice. Once at Jesus' baptism, and then what we read this morning. And both times he says, listen to my son. Meaning, accept his words. Place your confidence in him. Take on his mind. Think of Philippians 2 and begin to act accordingly. Because in the Bible, learning to listen implies obedience, which then gets us to the spiritual formation aspects of this passage, right? So just think of it this way. God has a thing going on. It began before creation in, in the intentionality of this trinity of beings. It will have its fulfillment, Revelation 22.5, in us, and all Christians throughout the millennia ruling and reigning with him forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the big unfolding story. The transfiguration gives us a, a rare glimpse into where it's going, and at the core of it is listen to my son, which implies obedience to this story. It doesn't imply so much moralisms. It implies alignment, right? Sin means to miss the mark. So if God's story's going this way and we're living this way, hamartia means to miss the mark. Or the Hebrew words for sin mean more to like choose your own path or go your own way or to transgress from this way. And so the transfiguration says to us, there is a way. And listen to my son to find that way. So in terms of our own personal formation and how this works for us, I think it's the remember, the, the presence and practical value of the invisible world and our glimpses into it. And so the transfiguration, I think, to get to what we asked, what are the purposes of it? I think it was indescribably important and life-changing, giving Peter and James and John knowledge, something they could act on, knowledge as compared to belief, or to commitment, you know, in the ways that we get committed to a diet or we get committed to a new workout regime. So something beyond belief, like religious, something we think we should believe or beyond commitment or beyond profession, 
they got to knowledge. Wow, this is real. One of my mentors used to say to me that invisibility and hiddenness are not abandonment. There was no time before or after the transfiguration in which Peter, James, and John were abandoned. God was always present to them. But in these moments when something is pulled back, we see that there is a way of God being present to us in hiddenness that's actually good for us and that it doesn't overwhelm us. It, it, It doesn't allow him to impose himself upon us. It allows us to want. Think about how precious your wanter is, your desires. Well, if God imposed himself on us, it would wipe all that out. But his invisibility most of the time allows us to want and to seek and to define ourselves. For what we decide to seek in this life is the key to our current character and further determines what our character will become. So it's very important that God allows us to seek. And he couldn't do that if he was overwhelming us all the time. And therefore his hiddenness is actually really crucial to his purposes on earth. So we see then that God's sovereign rule over this world isn't as neat or clear or visibly straightforward as we would like. And that our frustrations with that mostly has to do with perceived or real injustices or sort of timetable issues where we want God to do something that he's not doing the way we want and on our time frame. But I think if we're to be honest, that raises an important question. Do we really want God's immediate and present action all the time? How about the moment you want to tell somebody at work who angered you to go to H-E double toothpicks? Do you really want God ruling over you right then, or would you prefer to be able to tell that person to go you know where? Right? So, so when things aren't going our way or in the time we want, then we want God to express himself. But do we really want God immediately judging and stopping our every impulse? Or is it that we really only want God to act in special circumstances over there? but not really acting in us the way it would have to be if he was visible to us all the time. And so what we learn here is this lovely, gentle balance that what showed up at the transfiguration is real, but it mostly is hidden to us. And that in the midst of that, Jesus loves and gently cares for us in the midst of our dark fears and confusions. And that as a master, think of that, as a master, as a, as a rabbi, Jesus guided his apprentices and gave context to and interpreted their spiritual experiences. I mean, that's one just beautiful way to read the four gospels. It's just notice Jesus walking with the 12, helping them to understand all that they were experiencing, why it was okay to heal on the Sabbath or not. Were they supposed to bring bread and not leaven or leaven and not bread? I mean, just, you know, just think of their learning curve. And what we're to see in that is that in the same way that Jesus guided them through their dark fears and confusions, he will do the same to us today if we learn to pay attention. Listen to my son. So recall now, let's put these two things together. So call to mind again, that scary decision that Jesus called for last week. Who do you say that I am? 
And now remember Jesus being radiant at the transfiguration. And then holding that together, think of these words from John 8. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have light of life. And so a big part of Christian spirituality, of following Jesus, is learning to notice the fact that behind the dull and muted or grimy curtain of our painful, emotional, physical, or spiritual symptoms, there's this great reality always shining, always willing our good. Okay, now what? What is the spiritual formation invitation of being terrified? They saw it and they were terrified. Well, what's the invitation there? And it's something like seeing that magnificent reality. You now have a basis for doing what Jesus said, to take up our cross and learn to abide in his easy yoke. And abiding in that yoke to learn joy that's rooted in the intersection of the visible and invisible worlds. And in that space, to learn to cheerfully roam the earth with Jesus. That's a phrase I heard decades ago from Richard Foster. I don't know where he got it, some old saint. But that phrase has just always stuck with me as a vision for life. How can I just cheerfully roam the earth? It doesn't sound very deep or spiritual, unless you think about it for a while. What would fund such an experience? Or partially the reality that behind all this lies this glorious, unspeakable reality that is largely hidden, but always there and always determinative. And that means I don't have to be. Amen.